Hi, Journey. How are you all doing today? Really, really good to be with every single one of you. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors around Journey Church. Uh, maybe you've been a part of Journey for a long time or maybe just a short time or maybe you got this big old postcard in the mailbox this week and thought, I'm going to go check this out. Maybe someone handed you one of those little fail cards like we passed around a little bit ago, invite cards. However it is that you got here today, we're really, really honored by your presence with us. You're here for the launch of a series that we call Fail. A guy named Steve Roy wrote some stuff that inspired the series and helped resource my prep and so. And I know the series is called Fail, pretty overtly called Fail, but it's my view that if we're going to talk about failure, we first must talk about success. Why is that? Because not a single one of you in this room, not a single one of you watching via video or listening via podcast woke up this morning and planned on failing today, right? None of your feet hit the floor this morning and said, I think I'm going to figure out the best way to have a colossal tree fall on my house, right? Nobody did that. Instead, when your feet hit the floor this morning, when you got out of bed, you fully intended on succeeding in every way possible today. And I know that to be true because there's this like hardwired, irresistible lure inside of every single one of us toward success. It's almost like a magnetic tug toward success. A college professor friend of mine said it like this, success is a shining city, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. We dream of it as children, we strive for it through our adult lives, and we suffer melancholy in old age if we have not reached it. In our culture, failure is the unforgivable sin and is to be avoided at all costs, Brother Tony. And none of us woke up this morning intending to fail. We all want success. And to prove our point, just how enamored we are with succeeding, I googled the word success this week. 290 million results came back. 290 million results. I spent the rest of the week reading every one of those results. No, just kidding. Compare that, 290 million results for the word success, 181 million returns on the word Jesus. When you Google Jesus, 129 million results for the word failure. Suffice it to say, we're obsessed with success. But what is it? What is success? Who is it that decides what success is? How do you measure success versus failure? It seemed to me that a dictionary was a good place to start to define success, so I turned there. This from Webster's. Success is a favorable or desired outcome. Makes sense? Favorable or desired outcome. Also, the attainment of wealth, favor, or eminence. And of course, in the United States of America, the very definition of the word success refers to wealth, favor, and like, of course, right? So, according to the dictionary, you're successful if and when you attain a favorable or desired outcome, which includes the attainment or acquisition of wealth, favor, or eminence. But wait just one second. Does a single accomplishment constitute success? I don't think so. For example, cooking one successful meal Does that make a person a successful chef? No. Hitting one home run and one at bat does not make a person a successful baseball player. Getting one single A on one single exam doesn't make a person a successful student because what's true 
is that success only comes, true success only comes when a person strings together a whole series of accomplishments, right? Which, by the way, makes the converse also true, and I want you to hear this, and I want this to land on you, and I want this to stick to you. One failure does not establish a person as a failure. One failure to accomplish your goals, your dreams, your hopes, your aspirations does not establish you as a failure. Let that stick to you. And that all sounds good, right? But we got this one little problem. Some people in this world, maybe some of you here today, feel very successful, even though the world at large views them as a failure. While other people feel very much like a failure, though the world sees them as very successful. So how in the world does that happen? Tony Campolo says it this way. We consider ourselves to be successful if the most significant people in our lives deem us successful. You get that? So the determining factor then for whether or not we deem ourselves successful is the view that our significant others have of us and our achievement. Which means then, who are our significant others? It's your parents, it's others in your family of origin, it's a spouse, someone you're dating, maybe a work associate, professional peers. It's all those people then who typically set the standard for us in our quest to be and feel successful. It's their evaluation that matters most for most people. Well, what are they measuring us against? There's a few standards of success in 21st century America. One of them is wealth, right? None of us would argue that. Wealth is clearly prized in our culture. For many, their sense of status and place in the social pecking order is determined by the size of their salary. One man put it so aptly. He said, all too often, our net worth defines our self-worth. Money helps a whole bunch of people in this world feel really secure. It enables a whole bunch of other people to feel really powerful. They say, if I can control the money, then I can make the decisions. It helps a whole bunch of other people feel really, really free and easy to enjoy life in lots of ways. Wealth is a standard, a metric of success in our culture. Prestige also drives many people's view of success. Recognition, applause, along with titles, degrees, corner offices, those are some of the victory medals in 21st century America. You add to that or those, our cultural obsession with celebrity and fame and prestige is like the pinnacle of success. How about power? Whether it's political power, economic power, personal power, it drives many people with a view that the more power you have, well then, the more successful you must be. How about this one, huge, beauty and youth. Beauty and youth is worshiped in our culture. And people these days will do almost anything to be beautiful and youthful so they can prove to the world that they're successful. And you wonder why eating disorders and other compulsive behaviors are on the rise significantly in our society. Because the view is, if you're thin, if you're beautiful, if you look young, well then, you must be successful. How about sports? You're being measured against a metric of sports achievement via sports. And sports, honestly, let, let's be candid. It isn't about just little kids having fun and developing character anymore, is it? Society and a whole bunch of parents of young athletes shout, second place doesn't count, and winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Which means that from very, very early in life, the importance of winning is clear. 
in the drive to be successful. Our kids are starting sports earlier and earlier and earlier, which is dominating not only little kids' lives, but entire families and even, well, entire communities as well. Competition is a benchmark of success these days. Wealth, power, prestige are valued way more highly when they're competitively achieved than if you just inherit them or get them handed over to you some other way. Lastly, relationships and family define success for a whole bunch of people. That's leading to more and more pressure on people, maybe some of you, to find the right relationship right now and get on in a hurry with bearing children, which then only leads to more anxiety on parents to ensure that their children are successful the way that society says children are supposed to be successful. It's like this vicious cycle. So, if we have then these significant others defining for us who measures up and who doesn't measure up to the varied and challenging metrics of success, how in the world does God fit into 21st century American culture and what it says success is? Where does the God factor enter into all of that? Now, I don't know how to put it more plainly than this. God's view of success could not be more different than our cultures, in case you're wondering. God's view of success could not be more different than our cultures. Now, for those who are new to the Christian faith, maybe some of you are just exploring Christian faith, I want to boil it all down by saying it this way. One of the central tenets of Orthodox Christianity is that God is the creator of the heavens, of the earth, everything in the heavens, everything on the earth. That includes, of course, every human being who has ever lived, you included. Since God is the capital C creator, that makes him the capital O owner of all things and all people. Because he's created and because he owns all people, he will be the ultimate judge. But living as followers of Jesus Christ requires way, way more than just intellectual assent to those central tenets of our faith. We have the challenge of applying those tenets, those realities, those truths to our everyday life. What do we do with those? How do we appropriate them in our lives? That means when it comes to our modern day measures of success as God's people, we must recognize God as our ultimate significant other. Did you catch that? For we who follow Jesus Christ, God must be the ultimate significant other in our lives. This means that ultimately it's his perspective, his evaluation that matters far and above all others. Which, if you're doing the math, you'd be right. That places the significant other humans in our lives secondary to God because our very first and highest priority is to do the things from 1 John that please him. It's about pleasing him, not all these other people, no matter how significant they may appear to be in our lives. Think about what Jesus said in absolutely no uncertain terms. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Have you ever tried that? It will not work. It does not work. Destined for failure. So when push comes to shove, which it often does, God forces us to set down our daily temptation to try to have multiple significant others operating at the very same level of ultimacy in our lives. He says you just can't do it. God first, everyone else after that. Which means for us then practically, those who trust Christ are meant to be ever-growing in our orientation of our lives around him. Seeking his approval first and foremost. Dialing down the approval factor of other people in our lives and saying, I play to an audience of one. 
and his name is God. Again, following God as our ultimate significant other is profoundly different than taking our cues of success from society. I can't reiterate that enough. His perspective on success and failure are a marked and radical departure from those you and I are accustomed to. God said it really succinctly in Isaiah 55, starting in verse 8. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And God's not saying to us like, oh, you're so dumb, you're so little, you're so incompetent. He's not doing that at all. He's saying it's just so far and above anything you can even imagine. And there isn't another area of your and my life where that truth is more significant and more profound than when it comes to issues of success and failure. And for the remainder of the time we have together today, I want to walk you through an Old Testament narrative. That's an Old Testament story about a time when that truth, that reality gets borne out in quite a surprising way. I want you to imagine with me that the situation was dire. The desert sun was hot, I mean really hot, north of 100 degrees, the ground was cracked and parched, the people in the livestock were suffering, there was no water anywhere. And you wanna talk about being up a creek without a paddle, just try living in the desert with no water. It's not going to work. That's the beginning of a story from the history of the nation and people of Israel, from the book of Numbers in the Bible, chapter 20, you can turn there if you'd like to. This account, this story, took place 40 years after God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And in the absence of water, one day, the Israelites did what most people choose to do when things aren't going so well. What is that? They blame their leaders. Numbers chapter 20, verse 2. There was no water for the people to drink at that place, so they rebelled against Moses and Aaron, they didn't just blame them, they actually rebelled against them. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. After 40 years of Moses and Aaron at the helm of the nation of Israel, you'd think they'd sort of have all this figured out, like you'd think they'd all be one big happy family wandering around out in the desert and they'd be done with the blame game. But dream on. Moses and Aaron were still the objects of attack, opposition, and blame for every single problem that the entire nation was experiencing. Look at verses three to five. The people blamed Moses and said, if only we have died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. They're talking about back in Egypt. If only we had remained in slavery, that'd have been better. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people out into this wilderness to die along with all our livestock? We're gonna die with our livestock. This is pitiful. Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, and no water to drink. Now, if you were here last week and you heard me talk about the Song of Solomon and how sometimes those references are not to agricultural products, some of you know what I'm talking about. It's a little inside joke. This actually refers to agricultural products, okay? No sex here. Got it? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you should ask somebody or listen back to last week. But did you notice the pronouns that the Israelite whiners used? Did you hear it? Why did you? Why did you? Why did you? And can you sort of picture Moses and Aaron going like, what in the world? Can I send you a news flash, Israel? It wasn't Moses and it definitely wasn't Aaron who brought Israel out of Egypt. It was God, by the way. Not even close to being Moses. 
Now, God uses people. He used Moses in that process. But there wasn't any doubt that it was God who had been the ultimate deliverer of his people. But when the going gets tough, what happens? Well, a whole bunch of people, they start playing the blame game. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's all your fault. And here it goes. Out in the parched desert of a place called Kadesh Barnea, Moses and Aaron catch the blame. They're held responsible. They're the target of everyone's opposition and rebellion. It's your fault now. Moses and Aaron are godly men. They're really godly men. They take this very personally, of course. They're distraught by this great need of water for their people. They're thirsty too, by the way. Their animals are dying as well, by the way. And at the same time, they're empathizing greatly with the whole nation and people of Israel. They're also stinging from the whole nation's bitter accusations against them. How would you feel? You'd be ticked off. You'd be mad. But Moses and Aaron are more godly than me. And so what do they do? They go to God in prayer. They do the thing that we hope every spiritual leader does when the chips are down. They go to God in prayer. And this is an astounding moment. God meets them. God shows up. He gives Moses these really specific instructions. Verse 8, you and Aaron must take the staff. And that's not like a paid group of people who work together in a place. It's like a big stick, right? A big rod. And assemble the entire community. Right? Gather the whole nation of Israel. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there. And it will pour out its water. And could you imagine this? Moses and Aaron meet with God and there's a little rock over there. And they're looking at that rock going like, man, that doesn't look like a big water storage tank. This looks like a rock to me. But okay, we're supposed to gather everybody together. And we're supposed to, what? Speak to the rock over there and it will pour out its water. And it's not just going to pour out a little bit. The verse goes on. It keeps going. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. It's a lot of water. Hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. And so Moses and Aaron, they do just what God tells them to do. It maybe look sort of like this. Pretend I'm Moses. Pretend there's a little rock right there. Pretend you're the people of Israel. And they all gather together. And Moses and Aaron are standing with their staff. Something happens inside of Moses. As Moses stood there facing these ungrateful complainers, Anger welled up inside, like 40 years worth of frustration, opposition, and blame finally took their toll, and Moses just erupts. Look at verses 10 and 11. And he and Aaron summon the people to come and gather at the rock. And look at what Moses says. Listen, you rebels. God didn't say anything about saying anything like that. He shouted. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? And Aaron's probably looking at him like, "Uh, I think that's the goal, Moses. Yes, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with the staff, and water gushed out. Not just a little puddle either. It was like enough clear, cold, refreshing water to satiate an entire nation. Likely hundreds of thousands of people and Animals, this is a miracle that just happened. Success for Moses. Whoa, what a guy. Just think about what that meant for the nation of Israel. They'd been without water for an incredibly long time. Throats are dry and parched. Families, livestock, kids are getting weak, perhaps even approaching death from dehydration. 
Sure, we can't blame them for being upset, even angry. And in the midst of that, God taps Moses on the shoulder. God again chooses to use Moses, the same guy who the Israelites had blamed their situation on, the same guy who was the object of scorn, hostility, opposition, rebellion. And he lets him meet their needs in this really powerful way. And can you almost hear the cheers and the applause for Moses, right? Moses, Moses, you're our man. If he can't, right? Give me an M. Give me an O, right? Moses would have been regarded as like a hero of his people. Once again, Moses rocks it. Yeah. Seven people over here got it. Send me a bill. God gets the glory. Moses gets the applause. And it's like another resounding success in Moses' stellar leadership portfolio. But stop the tape. Think back to the conversation. Who is Moses' most significant other? Is it the people of Israel? No. It's God. And so you look on this scene from God's vantage point, and you can hear God going, oh, Moses, that actually wasn't success at all. As a matter of fact, this water from the rock adventure may well have been Moses' greatest failure. And we're like, wait, just a minute. How'd that happen? I go back to God's instruction to Moses. What did God tell Moses to do with the rock? Speak to it. Just like whisper sweet nothings, Moses, to the rock. And water's going to gush out of it. God didn't say anything about striking the rock out of anger and lack of faith and frustration. And so look what happens. What the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is right on the heels of this Apparently great success. Because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I am giving them. Whoa. You talk about like a crushing blow. All because of a single moment of disobedience, Moses and Aaron lost the chance to fulfill this long-held, long-cherished dream of leading God's people into the promised gone in just a moment and here's what that means for us it is entirely possible to be regarded as hugely successful in the eyes of the world and yet not at all be successful in the eyes of God ever thought about that you and I can be all about giving people everything they want from us We can have the approval and the applause and the accolades of every single one of our significant others. We can be appreciated and admired by our peers, our family, friends, boss, coworkers, neighbors, even ourselves patting ourselves on the back and still not be successful in the eyes of God. All your promotions at work, your salary being on the rise, your prestige factor in the community being off the charts, up and to the right, if we are not faithful to God first and foremost, here's the bottom line, we're not successful. If we're not faithful to God first and foremost, we're not successful. And 
if we're genuinely faithful to God, trusting him enough every single day to hear his voice and do what he's asking us to do, we're successful no matter what anyone else says. Because you see, at the end of the day, it's all about faith. God longs, God asks, God invites, God challenges us to be people of faith, trusting him entirely, not just with words of promise, not just with words of faith, but where we actually walk this faith adventure out, where we hear from God and respond to him step by step, moment by moment, day by day. I want you to say with me, for instance, that you're sick. You're really, really sick. And so you do what smart people do when they, they're sick, which is what? Go to the doctor. That's exactly right. After the examination, the doctor says, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. It's one of those deals. The bad news is you're very, very sick. Dangerously so. But the good news is that I know how to make you well. Doctor pulls out the prescription pad, writes a prescription for the medicine that you need to take. So the question for you then becomes... If you really trust your doctor, what are you going to do with that prescription your doctor just gave you? You'll go fill it, right? You'll take the medication according to the label instructions. But if you don't, your actions really speak loudly and clearly that you don't really truly trust your doctor, right? Maybe in your head you cook up all these schemes about your doctor being incompetent. Maybe you think you know better what you need to do to get well. I'm just going to take three oregano tablets and see how this goes. Your unwillingness to follow your doctor's order says volumes about your lack of trust. Now hear this. It's the precise same when it comes to our relationship with God. Jesus comes to every single one of us in no uncertain terms and he says, look, you're really sick. Really sick. Sick in sin, sick in rebellion, sick in brokenness. But in mercy and grace, Jesus says to every single one of us, I know what will make you well. And it's me, Jesus says. It's me. Follow me. Trust me. Hang on to me. Obey me. That's Jesus' prescription for every single human being on planet Earth. So the question that remains then, do you trust God or not? Do you trust God or not? And if you say, yes, I do trust God, what are you going to do in response to his call? He says it's really quite easy. Accept it, embrace it, and become my follower, Jesus says. And that's the entire essence, frankly, of everything that it is to follow Jesus. You and I regularly facing choices in which we must decide whether to obey him or not. Every single one of those decisions is an issue of faith every single day. All of them. When Jesus says, for example, it's better to love and forgive your enemies than it is to hold grudges and seek revenge, you have to decide who are you going to trust. When Jesus says it's not about having an abundance of wealth or material possessions and that we should instead be content and generous, we have to decide. Who are we going to believe? Who are we going to trust? When Jesus says life my way means staying faithful to your spouse instead of believing the lie that if only I had another partner, well then I'd be happy, we have to decide. Is it my way or is it God's way? And it all boils down to this fact. The key to success in God's eye 
means living by faith every single day. Faith that fleshes itself out in obedience to him moment by moment by moment by moment. We're almost out of time, but I've got one more thing for you. Why in the world did Moses hit the rock? Why did he take out all his frustration and his anger, and why did he take his staff, his big stick, and why did he hit that rock? Ever thought about that? After all, Moses was a man of faith. His whole life was about trusting God in obedience. Why did he all of a sudden disobey and disbelieve? Know the answer? It worked before. Remember this? Some of you may remember almost 40 years earlier, Moses faced almost an exact similar situation. Exodus chapter 17, you can read it sometime. There were tens of thousands of parched, angry Israelites, no water, they're thirsty, their livestock are thirsty, their livestock are dying. That time, in Exodus 17, God tells Moses, take your stick and hit the rock so that water comes forth for the people to drink. Moses obeyed God, God showed up, water springs forth from the rock. So you fast forward about 40 years, Numbers chapter 20, it's like deja vu all over again for Moses. He's got this overwhelming pressure to meet the needs of the people, the overwhelming temptation to go back to what worked in the past. And so he does. I got this, God. I'll take this. I got my big stick. There's the rock. I know you're going to do your thing. And how many times do we feel that very same temptation? Maybe some of us, we're facing a crisis of success or maybe a crisis of failure. The overwhelming need and drive to succeed, the pressure can be so great that we're tempted to just blow God off and go directly to what worked for us back then, somewhere in the past. Maybe try what worked for someone else. Maybe some coworker who's getting all the accolades or someone next door who has a fantastic marriage, their kids are picture perfect and so on. Whoever, whatever it is, God says, don't don't fall into that temptation. Whatever you do, don't fall into that temptation. Trust me, today, right here, right now, today, do what I'm asking you to do now. Not what worked back then. Just obey me now. Step out in faith now. Trust me now. Cling to me now. Trust me today, God says. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would and I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Move into a posture of prayer and listening to the Lord if you would. I think if you're anything like me, we all have quite a bit of homework to do around this issue of success and who defines it for us with the Lord. And maybe just for you as a starting place of that conversation with the Lord, you just tell him, God, I want you to be my ultimate significant other. I want you to be the one who defines for me everything that success is. God, I want you to be the audience that I play to. And if that's you, I'd just invite you to 
Drive some stakes in the ground with him around that. Maybe there's even some confession for you to do where you say, you know, Lord, I've put an inordinate amount of weight on what that person thinks or what that person thinks. And God, I frankly need to repent of that. I need to confess that. And just say to him, Jesus, I need to set you far and above anything else, anyone else in my life, in every way, but especially when it comes to who defines success. Maybe for some of you here today, this is all about you choosing to start to live your life in relationship with Jesus as your Savior in a once and for all kind of way. Where you cease running from God, you give up the excuses, You put down your personal self-improvement plan where you're trying to prove to God that you're good enough, smart enough, strong enough, whatever. And you just say, Jesus, I really do need a savior. And if that's you today, you can pray with me right where you are to cross the line of faith in Jesus Christ and begin your own relationship with him. And if that's you, I invite you to pray with me. Just say, Jesus, I see all of my sin and it's disturbing and alarming and I'm so grateful, Jesus, for your death on the cross that covers it, that atones for it, that forgives it, that forgives me. And so Jesus, this is me, by all the faith I can muster in this moment, gratefully receiving your gift of salvation. There's a lot of things I think I need in this world, but Jesus, you're it. My greatest need, my supreme need is you. And so please come into my life and please forgive me. And Jesus, please receive all of this gratitude for everything that you've done for me, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, showing me what life your way looks like. Thank you. Thank you for taking my sin and thank you for giving me eternal life. Here's my everything, Jesus. And if you prayed with me just then to cross the line of faith in Jesus Christ, that's the biggest decision of your whole life. Monumental. And it's so monumental around here, we invite people to tell us when they make that decision. And so I'm going to ask you to do that. It's a private thing. Nobody's looking around this room. If you prayed with me just then to cross the line of faith in Jesus, you just right where you are slip your hand up and lock eyes with yeah right there way to go you can slip your hand up and lock eyes with me right now here to my left yes here to my left yes sir and yes ma'am and there in the back to my right yes here yeah you and you both of you way to go way to go way to go
Jesus, thank you so much for these who are coming home to you. Who are saying, you know, in the eyes of the world, you, Jesus, didn't look all that successful, and yet your success eternally really defies imagination. And thank you for these who are saying, I want the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I want Christ supreme first, foremost in my life in every single way. And are receiving your forgiveness, receiving your life. What joy it is for us to get to be a little part of that. God, thank you. And God, thank you so much for being the one who accurately defines success. I pray that every single one of us would live in pursuit of your version of success. That you would be our primary audience, God. And that we would, with everything in us, live to please you with our entire lives and be. 